Hi and welcome to the DMBA podcast where we share business confidence for designers. My name is Alan. I'm a business designer and founder of the DMBA. In this episode, I'm talking to Jensi Strickler, the co-founder and formerly CEO of Kickstarter, which, as we all know, revolutionized the field of early stage investment with the crowdfunding model. Uh, the companies have helped raise over $5 billion for more than 200,000 projects. So Yancy, after uh, sticking for 12 years at Kickstarter, left to pursue new ventures. So today he's a recognized author and founder of Benta Society, which you will learn more about soon in the episode. So recently I read Yancy's book titled This Could Be Our Future, A Manifesto for a More Generous World, and I think I got probably to page 20 when I realized that we, we need to have Yancy on this show because the message of the book like aligns perfectly with uh, also our thinking and our mission in the DMBA. So in this book, Yancy lays out how we got to this world where making money became the main and like the end goal in itself uh, for many companies. Yancy also lays out what we can all do to change this culture within companies. So basically what we can do to change how decisions are made to not just maximize profit for company owners, but to maximize goodness for all stakeholders. To get there, you'll hear that we also need some basic business knowledge. And if that's what you're looking for, I'd like to invite you to our seven-day mini-MBA, which is basically a free email course. So over the course of seven days, you receive seven emails and learn some of the most fundamental business concepts relevant for designers. So to subscribe to the mini MBA, head over to d.mba slash mini. And now let's dive into the chat with Yancy. Hi, Yancy. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. What's up? I'm so happy to have this chat with you today. And I was, I was in a way even happier when I heard about your book, because uh, some of the ideas that you mentioned in this beautiful book called this could be our future, a manifesto for a more generous world, are exactly the the challenges, the problems, the situations that we've been dealing with in the DMBA and we've been trying to find words and ways to express them. And I think your book does a great job in doing that. But let's cut straight to the chase. And I think the best way to explain to listeners what your book is about is to see, you know, how did we get to the business world, to the business community, where the dominant philosophy is that the right decision is the decision that mag- makes you the most money, you know, that maximizes profit. How did we get here? It's, well, th- thanks for having me. Great, great question. And, um, and a, a few different ways to talk about it. But I think that we've gotten to this place where uh, financial value is the only rational value we agree on and and especially in corporate organizational context that happened gradually and and it's largely happened for perfectly justifiable reasons which is when you make decisions and you're making decisions in a collective environment you want to make them based on some rationale something that's defensible and something that will let you know did it work or not and and so you're ultimately looking for on what basis can we make decisions that are measurable? And for the last, you know, 100 years of human history, 
most of what we've counted has been money or things that are worth money. You know, it, it takes effort to count things. And, and so, you know, everything has been pegged back to this literal gold standard of dollars. And when you get into a corporate environment, you know, this thinking has become um, so sophisticated and processed through business schools and, you know, many iterations of companies uh, working on these same theories and ideas to where now it's like a, it's a, a machine where we can make decisions, we can model out what the financial projections will be, we can, you know, and, and it's quite sophisticated what we're able to do. And it's all, I think all of that is quite laudable in, in many ways. The challenge, however, is that not every decision should be made that way. And what we find is that when you actually do just focus on this simple bottom line of what will be the most profit-maximizing outcome, it is possible to model that. But what, of course, you lose is all the negative impacts of that, or even more than the negative impacts, are, or what you what you lose are the positive possibilities that are foreclosed by this view of, well, we're just trying to extract as much value out of a customer as possible to increase our position. And so there's a, there's a cost to that. There's a cost to that. And so the challenge, and, and I think it's breaking now, but the challenge we found ourselves in the last 20 years in particular is that the level of financial thinking, modeling is extremely sophisticated. And any arguments against it feel emotional and less rational and harder to articulate. And they're more about it doesn't feel right. And for quite sensible reasons, arguments like it doesn't feel right don't always work. Sometimes they do. You know, maybe among creative people that works because we we understand there's like a gut feeling that you have to trust. But in a in a mixed environment with executives, you know, gut feeling is going to only get you so far. So where I see it is one school of thought has an extremely defined language and set of tools to manifest outcomes that they desire. People who don't subscribe to that value set have kind of been in this position of just being emotional and kind of complaining. You know, they're just like the voice, the squeaky wheel voice. And so the potential, and I think what's happening now, is for us to create a coherent point of view for why this only money option is limiting, right? I don't think there's an argument that can say this focusing on financial outcomes argument is wrong, but I believe that there is a possible argument to say it is limiting. It is not all of the picture. And I don't think anyone would disagree with it being not all of the picture. But the question is, can we articulate the rest of that frame enough to where you can have just as rational, reasonable a conversation with some VP uh, as you would about money? And so that that to me is success. And, and, and I think that that is where we are going to get to. It's a great, great way. I think a lot of designers can... Uh, see themselves in your answer because this you talk about the emotional way of um, you know emotional argument for your decisions and that's exactly what is happening with a lot of designers who get into senior positions in their companies and then they just say oh this doesn't feel right or this is not good for the customer and then you know the CEO or CFO is looking at them like yeah okay but but no <laughs> it, it, yeah no I, I've I've seen that break designers before. Right, because yeah. a designer, 
I mean, there's a, I've worked with many, many designers in my life, but you know, as a designer, you, you tend to be more empathic. You, you tend to be more creatively oriented. You, you know, you, you're probably putting yourself in the, in the shoes of the customer, maybe more so than other people. Right. And, and so those arguments that a designer will make about this doesn't feel right, or this is, you know, probably they wouldn't say this experience is alienating, but if you could, if they could articulate, Hey, this makes me as a customer feel not right. You know, there are some people who will listen to that argument, but then there are other people, other executives who will just say, well, Hey, the AB test says (laughs) more people, more people make through. So whatever. And it's not a wrong perspective in in some cases, but those kinds of decisions and friction can really kind of break people because it makes Mm -hmm. you, it makes you doubt your own instincts. And as a creative person, if you come to doubt your own instincts, you're, you're really in trouble because your, your instincts are that, are that kind of true North. And so this is where, you know, I I was as a CEO and in other roles in companies, I've been in these positions. I've been on both sides of these positions. And what it has led me to feel like is kind of like the first answer that there's a bit of an unfair fight. Whereas one group is arguing with, Financial, numbers. rational numbers. The other group is just trying to, you know, have their point seen. And is there a is there the potential for a shared language to where, you know, both sides are making articulate arguments that are all exist in the same universe, mm-hmm. and they must reason between them. And so, mm-hmm. you know, for me, my, my creation of uh, the bento method, bentoism, originated from my experience as a CEO, feeling like, you know, th- this this dynamic where we have that because I am the co-founder CEO, I have some kind of godlike status, and whatever I say is right, and people look for my approval, um, is not a great situation because I will be right. wrong, because arguments will shut down if I say something, and. You know, maybe, maybe some, sometimes I'm sure I'm right. Maybe sometimes I'm not. And so is there the potential to create a shared language where a designer could call me out and say, you know what, boss? Actually, according to what we've agreed on as being important, what you just said is, is actually not right. And to me, an organization, uh, or a collective environment that empowers each person to speak for what is important to call out someone else regardless of power structure and to have a common language of what the outcomes you want are that is that is the 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 type of organization that I want to be a part of that I want to create that I you know and, and so for me the creation of the bento was a a tool to try to provide that is there a way that everyone can literally be on the same page and so you can have, have arguments based on the same language the same principles right. and and maybe that's a world in which the creative side is is empowered, is legitimate. And it's not just creativity gets to operate within the margins that finance sets for it. I think you touched twice already on this idea of bentoism and bento as a tool, uh, which which kind of bridges these, these two worlds of emotional and rational way of uh, giving arguments. Um, let's, let's just unpack it, you know? Can you explain for the listeners who haven't read the book and without having, you know, in, in front of their eyes, the, yeah. the, the matrix, yeah. what is it and what does it do? Yeah. So, so the bento or the, the bento method or bentoism, all, all phrases you could use, um, 
it came for me from, it was while I was writing this book, This Could Be Our Future. It was about a year after I'd stepped down as CEO of Kickstarter. And um, and I was thinking a lot about this, the notion of self-interest, uh, which is at the heart of capitalism. Adam Smith writes, it's, it's not from the benevolence of the butcher that we expect to be fed, but the regard to their own self-interest. This idea that we are a world that trust people to do what's what is in their self-interest what's right for them and one day i was thinking about that and i i was um, just sketching and i drew a hockey stick graph you know a, a simple chart where a line just slopes up and to the right and this i thought this is like the emblem this is this is the crucifix of self-interest and growth today you know where, where whatever it is you want money power followers is just growing so fast it's going to the moon and this is this is the ultimate. This is the ultimate. This is what we all dream of. And it occurred to me as I was looking at this graph that both axes of the graph extended, that the x-axis on the bottom showing time, it went from now infinitely into the future, if you wished. And the y-axis, the vertical axis, representing whatever it is you want to grow, whatever your self-interest is, I thought, you know what? That also extends because as our self-interest grows, so do our responsibilities. And so suddenly I extended the lines and instead of this little hockey stick graph, I had this big square. And I quickly drew four squares inside of it, turning it into a two-by-two two matrix. And it, and it instantly illustrated this new model of self-interest, where we have in the bottom left corner, now me, where hockey stick graphs live, what each of us as individuals want to need right now. This is how we think of self-interest today. You go get yours, I go get mine, right? We take care of ourselves. Then in the bottom right, we have another box that's called future me. And this is the older, wiser version of you that you hope to one day become. And that person becomes real or not based on the choices you make at any given moment. There's also in the top left, there's now us, the people in your life that you care about and they care about you. And in the top right box of this two by two is future us, the world your future self will inhabit or your kids will inhabit if you have a family. And when I first drew these boxes, I thought, oh my goodness, you know, every every decision I make leaves a footprint in all of these spaces. Like I affect future me, I affect my us, and they affect me. And of course, my actions today affect the future. But yet on a day-to-day basis, I'm functionally blind to everything other than now me. Mm-hmm. And as I saw this, I I realized this was like the map that I have been think this is where I really exist. This is the spaces, these are the spaces I've been looking for. And I, I wrote next to this simple two by two, a basic description of what I, of what I drawn. And I wrote beyond near-term orientation. This was just a simple two by two box beyond near-term orientation. And I looked at what I wrote and I realized it was an acronym that spelled bento. And I thought, <laughs> oh, it's, it's the four boxes. It's a, it's a bento box. It's, you know, the, the beauty of the bento is it has different compartments in a lid. It lets you have a variety of things, not too much of any one dish. So it's always a balanced, healthy meal. And the bento also honors a Japanese dieting philosophy called harahachibu, which says the goal of a meal is to be 80% full. That way you're still hungry for tomorrow. So the bento method is the same idea, but for our values, our decisions, the way we live our lives, where we make literal space in our choices and how we think about these things for the people in our lives, for our future selves. Um, and we incorporate all of those things into every decision we make. And so this is a, this is a framework that I have lived my life by um, for coming up on four years now. There's a big community of people do it. It's a personal tool, an organizational tool. 
but it's really existing to try to solve this question of how can we have rational shared conversations about our collective space, about our, our future space that we will all inhabit that is being formed as we all act. And today we, we don't think about those places as being real. They're not in our conversations in a, in a real functional, practical way. But to my mind, the bento is, it is a map. It is in the same way that north, south, east, and west are fictional concepts, right? North is a concept. The idea that a direction is north, like that is a con, a word and a concept applied to our world. Mm-hmm. To me, these notions of now me, future me, now us, future us are exactly the same. They are conceptual directions that are literally true though. If we all, they are, they, are, they all have truth in our lives and they become a language that we can use to collaborate, to guide each other, and, and, and to define where we are on the map. Yeah, that's, that's the bento. Perfect. So let me just recap quickly, because for someone who hasn't seen it, maybe they're lost now. So we have four squares. In the bottom left, we have know me. Bottom right, we have future me. Top left, we have now us. And top right, we have future us. Good. So let's maybe see how this is used, right? So now we know what the Bento uh, approach is. How would it be uh, used in, let's say, making a certain decision? You know, or maybe how did you use it? Yeah, yeah. So this is what's great. is It's not just a conceptual framework. It is, a, it is an interface. It is a tool. Um, so when I use it, I'm looking at my Bento right now in front of me. It has like my core values in each box written down. Um, and... Uh, and yeah, so I'll talk through one of the first decisions I made using the Bento. So I, I, I do public speaking, uh, paid speaking gigs. And sometimes I will get asked to do these by companies I do not like and uh, or don't particularly respect. And every time I've been asked to do one of these, I just say no. And I also get kind of pissed off at even being asked, like, how dare you? How dare you think I would do this? <laughs> Whatever, it's childish. Um, but I have those feelings. I have those feelings. Right. And so I got asked one of these, to do one of these, like a week after I came up with the bento. And I and my initial instinct was, yeah, I'm getting ready to write my my pissed off email. How dare you offer me, uh, <laughs> invite me to your, your, your establishment. Um, and so instead I asked my bento. And so to ask your bento, what you do is you ask a question to each of these boxes individually. So I ask my now me box, should I do a talk for a company I don't like? Now my now me value is to show people the matrix. The thing, when I went through this process of identifying what's most me, how am I my best self, it came to this idea of like telling stories about how the world really works. So that, my now me voice says, doing a talk for a company you don't like, it's cool with us. Like we're showing people people the matrix, let's do it. Uh, My now us, my now us is about having deep focused time with a core group of friends. Like I, I'm not on my phone a lot. I'm hyper present with people. When I ask that now us voice, should I do a talk for a company I don't like? It said, yeah, sure. Like an hour to talk about ideas. We got, we're down with that. I asked my future us, my future us, which wants me to build a better matrix, like create a better world. Uh, when I asked that box, should I do a talk for a company I don't like? That voice said, of course you should. You can't just preach to the choir. Like if you're trying to build a better matrix, this is this is place number one you gotta be. Are you kidding me? Like let's say yes right now. And then I got to my future me box, which thinks about the person I want to become. And my future me is always telling me to create harmony because I'm a child of divorce. So I'm always trying to bring people together, but also always tells me don't sell out. And this future me voice, when I asked it, should I do a talk for a company I don't like? 
It said, hell no, you're a sellout. You're a sellout. You are, you are trading your morals, your values for money. How dare you? And I suddenly realized that that pissed off voice I'd always felt about being asked, that was my future me. And my future me was acting like a, a bouncer outside a club. This big dude mm-hmm. who's standing there and he's looking out for my values. And something's coming in that it thinks that I, I, I don't like, so it's trying to keep it out. But because I had this, this larger perspective from the bento, I had the right, the agency, to tap that bouncer on the shoulder and say, nah, it's cool. I got this. It's fine. And so in the end, I ended up making a 180 different decision that I'd ever made about these things before. I ended up doing this talk and did so not feeling in any way conflicted, feeling actually quite certain, you know what, this is what I should do. And I approached it with the thought of, I'm going in to create a better matrix, right? And so it, it produced a, a completely different outcome that I was certain was like actually more coherent with who I am in a deeper way. And so the way we use this is you just, you're just looking to each box and just seeing what it says. And, and what it often does is it will reveal the very true contradictions we all hold. And it empowers you to navigate them rather than feeling emotionally captured by them or just, you know, feeling off. It, it allows you to see what's going on and gives you agency to, to redesign the outcome. Right. So when, what, so when you actually fill out the, the bento boxes, right? The four quadrants, um, how does it need to look like for you to move forward with this decision? Does that mean that the top right needs to be yes and then we're doing it? Or do all four need to be yes? Or, you know, how does that work? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think it's rare that, well, it's, it's sometimes true that a question will be all yeses from the start. I mean, for the most part, you know, the things I ask my bento are things I'm not clear about. And often I'm not clear about, maybe because I haven't thought about them enough, or because there's certain parts of me that say, hey, what, you know, why not this? Um, but I've made, you know, hundreds of decisions this way. And what I have learned is that when you do get those sort of mixed results, I, I go through a simple process. Well, first I say, um, well, are there any assumptions I'm making here that I should just think about a little differently? So say my now us is like, oh, I think my, my wife will dislike this, you know, but then I might ask, okay, well, why do I, why do I think that? Is that, am I assuming I'm going to do this a certain way? Like, is there, should I have a conversation with her ahead of time? Maybe that changes it. So it can reveal like, If it's not yes now, perhaps there is a way to get it to yes. Um, another thing I will often do is, this is pretty basic, but I will just listen to my body. You know, I will, I, as I pay attention to how I respond, your, your body gives you information. Like, where do you feel energy? Where do you feel a pit in your stomach? You know, those are things to sort of double click on and to examine more closely. And then finally, what I often find And this, this case of me giving the talk was kind of the outcome is, you know, the bento will give you a way to design a path that satisfies all aspects of you. So in, in a lot of cases, the right answer will not be like everyone else is wrong. I'm right or whatever. It is some sort of compromise that you learn to hold some tension that you're like, okay, well, I will, you know what? I will let them have this one because this other thing is more important to me. So it sort of teaches you how to create outcomes that are both satisfy you and satisfy the other parties that are that are important uh, in any situation i you know when i was first using the bento i would write out answers i would like you know respond and just let my mind flow because you discover things that way at this point now it is a 
I close my eyes and I can see my bento and I see like green X's, green checks and red X's, you know, almost instantly just because I've, I've still incorporated this thinking into my mind. Right. So let me play a devil's advocate for, for a moment. So let's say that now I'm a designer. I take bento box and I want to use it with, you know, uh, top level executives. When, even when I use this bento box, you know, the, the words that I'm using, they still sound a little bit emotional. They don't feel the same, like, you know, like tangible as numbers do. So even with this framework from you, from your experience, from what you've seen it being used, what's the best way and what is the way to use it to come across as rational? Not just like, Hey, bento is telling me to do this. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. I think, I think, um, I mean, I have a, I have a class I, I teach on this, but I think, you know, there, there's definitely a way to talk about bento with people who aren't in bento. Um, and so I think to start, it isn't using, uh, all the language. You know, I think it's using, you can talk about these spaces in a different way. Now, especially in an organizational context. I'll, I'll get to that in just a second, but there is, there is like, you know, when people come at you with verbiage, terminology, I think a lot of us, we, our defense systems go up and just like, wait, am I being sold something here? So, you definitely don't want to have that kind of dynamic. Um, you know, I, I originally conceived of the bento when thinking about my experience at Kickstarter. I tried to create something like a compass that we could all share, trying different forms. Never got something that was sticky enough. It was a, a year later that that the bento came to me. Um, but, you know, for the bento in an organizational context, those four boxes represent things that every company already knows. The now me for your company, that's your mission and just the shit you have to get done. For most companies, they think that's all their company is. It's like executing and being profitable. In reality, that's just a small piece of what makes a successful company. But like that's your, every company's now me is like your mission and profitability. So that, that already exists. Every company's now us are the key stakeholders, the customer, you know, the investors, the employees, whoever matters in that situation. And also every company that is worth anything has some sort of implicit promise to each of those groups. To an employee, we will be transparent. We will treat you fairly. To a customer, you will always get, you know, whatever the XYZ of your offer is. So that's your now us. And so keeping that actually very clear in your mind is incredibly powerful. And people do a really bad job of that. Um, the best companies are really good at thinking about their stakeholders. The The mediocre companies do not. They think about mm-hmm. themselves. Um, the future me for a company are your values, are the, the, the company you want to wake up and be one day, you know, who you hope to be when you grow up. So that's your future me. So holding that in your mind, you know, are we living up to what we say we want to be with this decision? And mm-hmm. finally, future us, you're thinking about the vision of the company. If we are successful, Microsoft, if we are successful, there will be a computer on every desktop in 10 years. Right. And so and so, what you're doing is you are bringing these things that organizations say they care about, but just like in the case of now me as being very clear and other things being less clear, these sorts of values, vision, stakeholders, they, they often become secondary in these conversations. It becomes about well, this is what the person in charge wants. They're the key stakeholder. It will drive this revenue growth. Therefore, there's no argument to be had. But what the bento shows you is that the companies that succeed do so because they pursue those Naomi goals while holding constant in their mind their future me values that they want to live up to and the promises to their stakeholders. They're now us. So success is not about 
just making more money today than tomorrow. It is about making more money today than tomorrow through <laughs> hyper-focusing on stakeholders, through right. having a hyper-awareness of what your future self is meant to be. And so it is, it is meant to bring these things that are already core to a company's success and make them more practical, more tangible, um, and more like, hey, does this decision live up to who we want to be? So, you know, in, in my mind, there is a, um, these are all things that are already in the room. They're just not well defined or talked about. And, you know, I, I think the bento is a, is a way to bring those things into the space and have them be, again, I think of an interface. You know, I, I think of like the four, you're just trying to satisfy these four boxes. Like I, to me, the dumbness, the simplicity of it is, is its advantage. And the fact that these are all, these are all things that companies say they're trying to do well and the best companies do do well, but it's just hard. And so to me, this is a tool that makes it more possible to live up to your values, to actually consider your stakeholders and so on. I think one, one thing or one way you can also do and provide a good argument for why a company or a person should behave in the future us uh, way is also through stories. You know, as we said before, like it's really hard to to argue with numbers. Like, hey, our stock is going to go down tomorrow if we do make this decision. So what designers are really good at is telling stories, usually from the user perspective. But they don't have so many business stories, you know, up in their sleeve to kind of share them. So I'm just curious, like if you can share a few examples of companies who are successful in the business sense, but also very thoughtful towards their stock uh, stakeholders and just like the the you know the future us perspective you know companies who are profitable but also doing good my belief is that in every category the market leader is a bentoist company they might not they don't no one uses that language because people don't know what it is but in every category the standout is is the organization that is successful at constantly projecting, uh, you know, a consistent set of values, has a clear promise to their customers that they always live up to and exceed, and their success is a result of of their ability to do those things. The two two companies I immediately jump to mind as I think about this are Apple and Amazon. Um, mm -hmm. In the case of Apple, you know, Apple's. I would, I would say Apple's future us value, their brand value, we could still say is think different. Like we go back to the 90s ad campaign, we'll just say like that encapsulates Appleness in some kind of way. Um, so Apple's future me, every product they release has to satisfy this think different. Like if the Apple car is a Prius with a touchscreen in front, everyone's gonna be like, wait, this is not, this is not Apple. Like Apple, I'm expecting something more. Apple also has this hyper, hyper defined customer promise which is that we make technology that just works. You will never need to use a manual to use a Mac. You know, you will, we will protect you, we'll be simple. Like you are, you are in the driver's seat. And so every Apple product has to satisfy that. For Amazon, you know, Amazon has this now us of they're the world's most customer-centric store. You can actually see most Amazon, most of Amazon's decisions as not optimizing for their own corporate now me, They're optimizing for a customer, now us, which is almost impossible for other companies who are all now me oriented to compete with, right? To compete with Amazon, you have to be more us, you know, more customer oriented or in a different way. Um, and so they have effectively, they're competing by 
changing who they are competing on behalf of. They are not trying to maximize their own profits immediately. They're trying to maximize for customer experience because they see that that creates a future us where Amazon is the only game in town. And so I think that in, in all of these categories, the best companies do things this way. Like making more money than you spend is a very critical, like you can't survive as a company without that. But what you quickly realize is that that, that is table stakes and that that is simply gets you in the ball game. Yeah. But what's, what distinguishes you, what allows you to win hearts and minds, what makes you um, a market leader is your ability to have clear thinking and consistent thinking in these other spaces. And to date, this has looked like magic. How does Steve Jobs do it? I mean, I, I've, I've made bentos for, you know, Apple, Madonna, Brian Eno, you know, quite like iconic people who it's like, how do they do what they do? And actually, if you, if you use the shape of the bento, you can reverse engineer the philosophy that guides these decisions. So it's possible to see how someone like Madonna, who reinvents herself you know, every six months, you could actually see the strategy of that and you can understand what she's doing. Um, and so this is, most people are stuck in this passivity of just now me. Most companies are stuck in the passivity of just now me. So having that additional foresight just gives you you know, you're playing chess in a world of people playing checkers mm-hmm. and, and it just, it just gives you such a leg up. I'm so happy you brought up Amazon because it's, it's, it's an example that we can, I think, unpack a little bit. I think a lot of designers just like, Oh, Amazon, right? That's because a lot of designers see it as a, um, as a company that is not, is not taking good care of their employees, you know, like low wages, bad conditions at work, and now we're kind of putting it as an example of a company that's doing well, doing like future, thinking about future us. And I agree with the fact that the company, Amazon, is definitely not short-sighted because when you read Jeff Bezos' like letters, you can see that they're clearly making decisions for the future. How, but how do you reconcile these two perspectives? You know, like one part is thinking long-term, the other part, part is almost like, ethics or morality so if if we just focus on amazon for a second right and about these conditions of workers etc you know how does that fit into the model or like the way of thinking with bento yeah well i i think that um i i mean it's interesting a lot of the people you know say criticizing amazon's uh employment strategies or how it treats its its employees, you know, maybe come from companies that only have high skilled workers, you know, that don't have like Amazon has, I don't know, a million employees, somewhere, somewhere between a half a million and a million employees. You know, they were the first companies to go to a $15 an hour minimum wage. Um, so I think the kinds of jobs that they are competing with uh, at that level are quite different than what people are thinking about. So, you know, I, I'm not sure whether to what degree I accept a lot of the public discourse around what it is to work at Amazon. You know, I think I buy some mix of like the kinds of things Bezos says in his letter along with some of the criticism. Um, but, you know, these are manual labor jobs. And so manual labor jobs have certain realities to them. Um, so, you know, but what I think it does is that this just, it's a way of unpacking the logic of thinking like, well, how, how, how is someone like Amazon approaching a question? Like for me, when I was a CEO, so much of what I wanted, what I liked doing is looking at other organizations and just trying to understand what, 
what might they be thinking about that has them arrive at this outcome? Like, what do they know? Um, you know, and, and, you know, cause there's, it's often you can, you can learn, you can learn things. So, you know, to me, I think what, what Amazon has shown is, is the power of being customer obsessed, the power of having a well articulated vision of like your keys, your key customer, you know, who it is you're trying to solve for. And then what happens when you contort your entire business or organization to meet the needs of those people? So like somehow Amazon being customer obsessed goes back to like having doors for desks, right? Like some, like there's this kind of logic that works its way backwards. Um, you know, to some degree, I mean, I think that there's something we could find something to criticize in every company about its operations, um, uh, you know. And so I, I think in general, I'm probably a bit more, I'm a bit more forgiving in my thinking towards, towards organizations just from having run, you know, run one and knowing a lot of the, the, the positions you, you find yourself in. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think that it doesn't mean that every choice is going to work for every stakeholder. Um, but to, to some degree, you know, Peter Drucker, the great business writer, talks about this. Like, you have to have your theory of your firm. Like, what are the things we do and don't do? What do we care about and not care about? You can't care about everything. You can't fight every fight. So what is our theory of ourselves? And and so I think that sometimes that's a better way to understand maybe how a company might be thinking. Right. Well, maybe we can also talk about uh, your time at Kickstarter, right? So um, Kickstarter is a public benefit corporation. Like, what does that mean? And like, how does that translate into decisions that you took? Yeah, so so we were first incorporated as just a classic for-profit company. Um, the three of us as founders, we said from the beginning, we, we never wanted to go public or try to sell the company. The idea was to create a public institution that would last for the long term, that would do what it was supposed to do and not do things it wasn't supposed to do. Um, and... And so we operated from the, those principles and and being you know very clear on what we cared about all all being creative people who didn't intend to be in the world of business but ended up there. And then you know about four years in, we were kind of the height of our popularity. Um, we made this decision to reincorporate to change our structure from being a for profit C corp to being a public benefit corporation and. As a public benefit corporation, it was a brand new form when we did it. Um, as a public benefit corporation, you are legally required to make decisions that balance the interests of shareholders with producing a public good for society. And so it's not like um, corporate giving programs where it's like Chase makes $3 trillion a year and they spend $2 million a year on parks afterwards as a way for apologizing for how much money they make. Um, this is instead that those social good outcomes and those financial outcomes must be made together, like one-to-one. -one. It's not like you get to do one and then the other one comes second. And and so as a, as a PBC, like it required all of our shareholders to vote and you write a public charter saying what you are to be held accountable to. And that becomes a legally binding document. And so Kickstarter reincorporated as a PBC saying, here are things we must be held to. We will always pay our taxes. We prohibit ourselves from doing X, Y, and Z. And trying to create what we thought of as, you know, 
an appropriate code of conduct for a company in the 21st century. Like in our ideal world, Goldman Sachs would just copy and paste our PBC and do the same things. Like they really could for the most part. Um, and yeah, so we, we, we did this in 2015. Um, and I was CEO at the time. And you know, it, I wasn't sure whether it would make a difference, to be honest. I didn't know. You know, these have been things we'd always said. But it did make a difference. For me, as the leader, you know, instead of in the past, you know, maybe there'd be questions of should we engage on this issue? Is this something that we should talk about, care about? You know, do we care about issues facing artists or not? Um, mm-hmm. And instead, we, we suddenly had this charter that said, these are things you must do. And so for me as a CEO, it felt like our values moved from being guardrails we would maybe bump up against if we went awry to instead things I must do every day. Like part of my job every day is to advocate for artists, period. You know, part of my job every day is to advocate for employees, period. And and so that changed how I thought about my job. Um, and so one practical thing I could point to is that um, we made and launched the Creative Independent, which is a, a, a publication that's a Wikipedia for creativity that every day interviews an artist about their creative practice. And they talk about the practical and emotional realities of what they go through. That's a service offered free. It's all, you know, Kickstarter fully pays for it. Um, and our thinking was, this is a part of our charter as a public benefit corporation to live up to, to be a company that advocates for the rights of artists and the right and the importance of creativity. We're going to make a publication that does this uh, in a way that we think is missing. And so there you have, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in spend that you're greenlighting, where in the case of Creative Independent had like no link backs to Kickstarter, wasn't promoting Kickstarter in any way. It was a totally separate entity, but yet we were spending a lot of money on it because our charter said this is on strategy. Before that, we would have had, I don't know how many arguments about whether or not to do such a thing. But now that it was in, hey, this is in our founding document. We got to do things for artists. Like, do you have a better idea than this? We have to do something for artists. Like, this is a great idea. Can you beat it? And it's just a very different conversation that happens after that. Yeah, I think even better to understand this, like we have to compare it with like a traditional public corporation, which has a legal obligation to maximize profit, right? You can get sued if you don't do what's the the best interest of stockholder or shareholders uh in your company and um what like public benefit corporation does it like gives you as a ceo a way to do these things without also (laughs) facing like legal actions yeah yeah and and it's and this is where it's also important to distinguish between a public benefit corporation and a b corp which have almost identical branding but are very different (laughs) concepts a b corp is a company that's passed an assessment that says they how they run themselves is within certain ethical boundaries. However, being a B Corp uh, doesn't bind any future actions. It doesn't say anything about how you are going to make decisions in the future. It just says at one point in the past, you 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 pass some test. As a PBC, you are your actions are legally bound to what is in your charter. Um, and so you know what you're going to see is that some of the B Corp companies are going to lose their B Corp status because that was just about a, a marketing thing in a moment of time. Right. But a PBC um, in that structure, and I think, you know, I think PBC structure is going to be 
it's it's very compatible with things like DAOs and uh, sort of the the crypto um, organizational structures that are beginning to happen. Right. Um, and so I think that having more opinionated organization types it, is going to be a much more common thing in the future. I have one last question, a tricky one. So imagine that you work for a company that is clearly following the financial maximization model. How real, how realistic is it for you to change that? Should you try? Or when when does it make sense to try and where should you just try to find a new place? Great question. Um, I'm going to answer this by thinking about how do organizations change? How do organizations change? Paths to change. So one is uh, the CEO has like a burning man moment. <laughs> I'm using that as a broad phrase to being like a you know, they, they looked into the fire and saw something new and they return right. with a, you know, something new in their heart. Um, that's possible if you are a founder run company in a company where the founders are still in charge, that is possible. That is always possible as an outcome. You read a book and it changes your worldview and we're like, shit, we got it. We got to do everything. So if you're not a founder led, if you are an executive led, a hired person, uh, Seeing seeing the light, probably not going to happen. There's a lot of forces pushing against them. Um, so in a situation like that, how did things change? Well, to me as a CEO, what was I most terrified of? Um, I was most terrified of public pressure and employee pressure, especially employee pressure. Employee pressure is quite hard because most CEOs are always afraid of losing their key employees. If you're in a technology company, you're afraid of all your good engineers quitting tomorrow. <laughs> it is a, I would go to sleep with that fear. I would wake up with that fear. And <laughs> you, you, you know, you know, you know who the key, who the dozen people are that really matter inside your organization. You do. And you are constantly, I always had a high emotional awareness of what those people are going through. And so those people, those people could change how I would do things. If one of those people came and said, Hey, I think my team, this project isn't working. We don't believe in it. You know, for us, this seems true. Can I, can we just have a conversation about it? You know, that would be a very effective way to get me to at least reconsider. Cause hey, here's a valuable employee saying, we're not sure. We're not sure. Right. Okay. Well, how can I, how can I push back against that? Um, you know, a, a group of employees, yeah, making a stand together. Um, or if, my industry I'm in, the category I'm in, starts changing in a big way. Oh, wow. You know, I run Chase Bank and Citibank and everyone else just made some big change. And suddenly it's like, wait, do we need to do this too? That will cause me to, to, to change my mind. Um, but it's really only through that kind of pressure, I think, that, that, that things happen. Um, so I would say if you are, you know, if you're working on a key product and you think that the logic for it is all wrong, you know, you, you have a conversation with your stakeholder. I would do it first in a more private way before going full on confrontational. But, I, but those, those are arguments, especially if you can come in and say, this is not serving our key stakeholders well. You know, actually, actually, or this is not living up to what we've talked about as being a core value. Um, that is very effective. That is very effective because you are using the true language of the universe you live in to argue against the state of that universe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that is the way to do it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, 
I think that employees underestimate their power to change the direction of the organization. And they generally underestimate it because probably they don't go about it in the smartest ways. But in a, you know, in a, in a slack workplace world, there is a lot more coordination. There is a lot more, you know, people can build a chorus of, Hey, this is not right. Or pushing back on certain things. Now that it's very possible that leadership will, you know, will get their backs up. You get defensive, you know, a lot of things with Facebook I've looked at and think, you know, how, if you're trying to change Mark Zuckerberg's mind, you know, is this the, what you're doing? You know, is it, is it pillaring? Is that going to change his mind? Or is there another way? Um, so, you know, I, I think you're you're trying to you're trying to appeal to a, a wider logic, um, and, and I think the language of how it affects customers, how it affects reputation, those are those are effective means. Um, and you know, it's not just saying like we're wrong. It has to be saying here's something that is more right. You know, here here is here is a part of the picture that's being left out. Right. You know, you can't just shit on what's there. You have to add to it. You have to add mm-hmm. to it. And I think if you do that, you can have influence. And if you have a good leader, you know, they will listen. It's a great advice. Thank you, Yancy, first of all, for this great advice. Secondly, for a beautifully written book, which has helped me personally crystallize and also solidify some thoughts and ideas that we worked on at the DMBA. Really beautifully written, beautiful language. And also, thank you for coming up uh, to the show and sharing this uh, knowledge with the design community, which I think is a really good audience for this message. Yeah, thank you. You know, just shout out to designers. Uh, you know, it's you you hold you know you you hold the the. We all know engineers are the most emotional people in an organization, but designers hold the hold the outward emotion for an org, and it's it's not an easy not an easy position to be in. Um, so very grateful to have that conversation. And I think teaching designers organizational skills, you know, mm-hmm. me- means of how do you achieve an end that you want inside an organizational structure is a skill right. we all need more of. So I, I really applaud the project. Definitely. Thank you, Nancy, again. All right. Thank you, Alan. So that's all in this episode. If you found this uh, episode interesting, you'll also enjoy Yancy's book, which is titled, This Could Be Our Future. Uh, and if you want to learn more about business skills relevant for designers, head over to d.mba slash mini, where you can subscribe to a free seven-day email course, which will teach you a few basic business fundamentals for designers. Thanks again, and we'll be back soon with a new episode. Bye-bye.